Hi. Looking at all these wonderful faces. Love these people. Hi. Great to see you. Very nice. Oh, excellent. Hi. Shalom. Wow. What a treat. Okay. Amazing. Everyone sees, sees that we have a chat over there, right? We're going to put that chat to use. Um, in general, if you have a thought or question, feel free to post over there. But also, um, I'm going to ask a number of times for folks, I'm going to pause and invite folks to actually put some answers over there, some reflections. So if you look at the bottom, there's chat. Um, as was shared, you're muted. And um, so to avoid any complications, we're going to do all engagement by chatting over there. But I will be reading those as we are engaging. Please be sure that you have the source sheet um, that you received in an email. Um, and if you did not receive that or don't have that email, you'll see in the chat that there's a link over there right now where you can pull, open that. Because this is a text study, it will be important to have that, um, to have that source sheet. So um, give me some waves if you're hearing me all good. If you're hearing me okay, good. I see some nods and some waves. Excellent. Oh, what great people to spend Wednesday with. Amazing. It's amazing. Okay. Terrific. Okay. Well, while we're giving another minute for some more folks to join, I know we had a, I think it was about, 75 RSVPs, so uh, uh, not to mention the 10 Zoom bombers. If you've heard about the Zoom bombers, there's probably five of them on here now. <laughs> We're ready for you. The Zoom bombers, you've heard of these folks who kind of hijack, try to hijack. <laughs> We're ready for them. Uh, We're ready for anything after COVID-19. There's nothing we can't take on. <laughs> okay, friends, so let's start with a little uh, niggin, a little nigun, a little melody while we're waiting for everyone to join us here. So um, uh, this is one you might recognize it. If you don't, you'll pick it up pretty quickly. By the way, you probably know I'm not sitting in a grassy field, um, but that's part of our new, our new world where I can, my head can just appear within the grassy field. <laughs> Got the first part? Don't know, don't worry, nobody can hear you but your dog. Special friends, it's great to be with you, to have a time to be hopeful. Actually, uh, reflecting on hope, hope is not where we draw the present into the future, but where we draw the future into the present, right? Because if we try to draw the present into the future, then we try to evade responsibility. We are not present to the moment, to the reality. But when we work to bring the future into the present, a little bit of geula into the uh, into this moment, a little bit of the, um, the future, which we know historically, empirically, um, and from our own experiences, uh, will get better. When we draw that into the moment, we can live with hope. We can live with anticipation. And um, in fact, oftentimes, as we know, anxiety and fear is worse than the actual event that is to come. Right? That's not to downplay the event. And I share, a, I share a Gemara here. This Talmudic source is not in your sources, but I was just looking at this. It says in Moed Katan, 
after his death, Rabbi Nachman appeared to Rava. Rava asked him, did my master feel pain at the moment of death? Rabbi Nachman answered him, it was like a hair being drawn from the milk, i.e. I barely felt it. But if the Blessed Holy One would say to me, go back to that world to live just as before, I would not want to because of the immensity of the fear of death. Right? The rabbis are arguing there that the fear of death is in fact worse than death itself. Um, and this can often be true with many phenomena in life, that the emotions that are, that, that, um, uh, of anticipation uh, can be more dramatic than actually uh, uh, what is to come as well, of course, with many exceptions. But um, so in this session, we are counting the Omer. We're counting from the freedom of Passover to the revelation responsibility of Shavuot, right? And Shavuot is coming up very soon. And I am not so interested right now in this um, historical question of what happened at Sinai, right? I am sure there are people on the call who are absolutely sure that revelation happened at Sinai. I am sure there are people on the call who are absolutely certain nothing happened at a place called Sinai. And I suspect there's a big middle ground of unsure and uninterested unsure and very interested, um, unsure and this is the most important question that guides our life, or unsure and it, the question doesn't matter because I'm going to be Jewish either way. And so um, that historical question is interesting. We have some recordings and articles on that interesting question. I am interested in the wisdom that is relevant to this moment, to the now, that has to do with revelation. Okay, and as I mentioned, we're going to do some interactive writing at different times. So be sure you have your source sheet if possible, and be sure you have your chat open if possible. I'm going to jump into source number one here. Our goal, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at honoring time and also pretty good at always asking for five minutes more. So our goal is two o'clock, but I'm almost positive it'll be 205 or 207, uh, just because it seems to always play out that way. Okay, the first source is from a book I just saw. Her name is Batya Galant. She wrote a book called Stages of Spiritual Growth. Here's what she says over here, the first source. The space between. Chazal tell us, the rabbis of the Talmud tell us, that the letters engraved in the tablets of the covenant consisted of empty spaces cut completely through the slabs of stone. The space between is reality. In the Asera Tadibrot, meaning the Ten Commandments, this is reflected in the letters consisting of carved out spaces. In our lives, it means that reality is found in the space between finite and infinite, between my self-expression and the absolute will of God, she writes. There is this gap in the revelatory experience. There is, is both the ethereal and the concrete. There is a gap in listening, the intention of a speaker, and the um, assumptions of the listener. This is true for all relational encounters, the space, what we call intersubjectivity, the space between one speaker's subjective consciousness and another speaker's subjective consciousness of how do, could we possibly understand each other. It's pretty astounding, actually, that some people can be married or partnered for a long time and yet still not be exactly sure what the other is saying. <laughs> Normally, we think we would come. And in other relationships, perhaps someone knows exactly what they're saying before they've even said it. Yes. And as Evan says here, the I, thank you, Evan, the I thou versus the I it. As we see in Emmanuel Levinas, or in this case, Martin Buber, this notion of really trying to be in dialogue, of listening, that you are not instrumental, but you are an ends in yourself. And so I need to really encounter you in your fullness. And so the Sinai experience, historically or, or beyond, is one of radical presence, radical attention to listening and receiving, right? Normally in dialogue, we're thinking about what we want to say next. Uh, if you're like me, you're thinking about what you're going to eat next uh, <laughs> or, or, what's, or, or what the next thing on your agenda is, right? But actually being radically quiet in order to uh, boldly listen. And that's to say that this is not absolute. 
There's some skepticism here. There's some relativity. There's some paradox here because of the complexity of communication. And that with the presence of divinity, there is revelation. But friends, here's the radical thing too. With the absence of divinity, there is revelation. In fact, the very absence of God is itself a revelation. Because as can come with the presence or the word of revelation, so too can be revealed through a quiet, through a contraction, through an absence, if you will. What happens in the quiet space? What happens here in the carved out space, the black space, not the white space? Okay, so that's the beginning of our conversation of what it looks like to listen, what it looks like to reveal and be revealed upon as a partner in such dialogue. Um, as always, inviting you into the chat there. There will be specific moments, but I'm always monitoring it as well. Okay, looking at our second source here. Our second source here is from the Midrash Konen. Not a very well Midrash, but Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel really likes this Midrash, um, this source in general. And it goes so far to wonder how the Torah could be written in heaven. The sages had this idea that the Torah is not given in a moment. This is primordial. There is wisdom that precedes creation in the world. On what was the primordial Torah written, they ask? On parchment? But the animals had not been created yet, so how could one use the skins for parchment? Maybe on gold or silver? But the metals had not been created, refined or unearthed. Maybe on wooden tablets? But the trees had not yet been created. So what was it written on? It was written with black fire, on white fire and wrapped around the right arm of the Holy One as it is written on God's right arm, the fiery law. On God's right arm, the fiery law. So that's, so it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, I imagine if I took a poll here that most of us would think of like a Hasidic man with tefillin on, right? But as I talk about with my kids all the time, my kids call God she, they usually call her she. Sometimes, sometimes they go to he, but we always talk about, do we take a Maimonidean perspective that God has no gender, right? A negative theology, or do we take sort of more Kabbalistic approach that God is all genders and beyond gender. God is nothingness or everything and absolute. And so to hear, so this image of what does this mean? Like this divinity where it wrapped up in this black fire and, and, and white fire. Um, that there is this primordial Torah, which is fire. What a powerful image to think about. It's fire. And this is experiential. It, it's phenomenological. Um, and it's beyond words and reality. We think of revelation as words, these words of a text. But then there is something that is unconscious or subconscious that goes beyond words. In fact, in com communication scholars say that 93% of communication is nonverbal. You've probably heard that before. If 93% of communication is nonverbal, what we're receiving, um, then what is this revelatory experience? What are we receiving that's beyond words and our normal reality? And this internal fire is this subjective experience, which we will come back to, that each of us has this different experience with. Looking here at source five, based on Proverbs, Midrash Hagadol, source, source three here, excuse me, source three, footnote five. Um, Midrash Hagadol is a 14th century source written in Yemen. And, um, and it says over there, you see, you see it and then it is gone. That's what it says in Proverbs. You see it and then it's gone. We've all had that moment. Like there's, it's dark outside, there's lightning, and you can see everything illuminated, and then it's gone. Or something is clear, and then you forget. If you're like me, you have to write everything down because your memory goes in like three seconds. Um, Rabbi Akiva argued that when a person learns a chapter and forgets it, it returns to heaven. Now, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, we're very fortunate at, uh, at VBM to do a lot of learning, and I actually forget a fair amount of it, even though we record it all and we get to listen to it again. But here, there is, when we forget, there is a flow between heaven and earth. There's a dynamic flow as it, between divine consciousness and human consciousness that's dynamic. It's not static, but there's a flow here. Um, ah, Jacob says, it sounds like tattoos. Um, tell me what you mean by that, Jacob, if you could write more about that. What sounds like tattoos? 
Ah, the black fire on the white fire. Oh, yes. The black fire on the white fire on the arm of divinity. That's very interesting. That's a very interesting uh, way to think of it. Thank you for that. How do you explain she to your kids when he is in the Hebrew Bible? Josh asks. Thanks for that, Josh. Love that. In fact, um, there's different language throughout Tanakh for divinity. Some of it is in the masculine form. Some of it's in the feminine form. Um, and so we think about the Shekhinah as the most obvious example, the, the feminine presence of God. Um, and, um, um, and yet, uh, as Mary Daly famously said, if, um, if, if God is male, then the male is God, right? So there are problems with a male-based theology. Nonetheless, uh, Kabbalah makes clear that gender is a spectrum, um, and that's all the more so true for, for divinity. Dr. Fischler, so what do we presume the tablets contained? The Ten Commandments? When was uh, Tanakh written down? Great question. Great questions. Um, those, those are great historical questions beyond the scope of the moment, um, but, I, but it's good that they're out there for others to engage with. And then Evan, God is both Maimonidean and Kabbalistic, like a quantum particle, a pair of ducks as <laughs> uh, uh, a paradox. Yes, absolutely, that God is most certainly uh, manifest in a paradoxical sense. So God's heaven, thank you, Mickey, is like a, re a revelationary cloud. Interesting thought, Evan. Yes. Thank you for that. And I know you can see them also, so I won't always read them out loud, but I do want to uh, get us going. So, so that's awesome. So we see here, there's an, uh, it's not static, but there's a flow in this revelatory experience. Um, and that one might even suggest that we don't find God or hear Torah, but we remember it. We remember it. What is that to say? One might say Gilgulim, that might mean reincarnation. We remember from a previous incarnation if, if we have any mystics on the phone. But also one might say that the neshama, the soul, the human soul already knows things. The soul, the, the, the divine wisdom implanted within the human spirit already knows things and the mind forgets. The mind forgets what the soul knows. And so learning is not discovering, but remembering what we already knew on a deeper level. So I'm gonna invite everyone to write now for the first time, everyone, anyone who feels comfortable doing so, what is one of the deepest things that you know to be true today? What is one of the deepest things that you know to be true today? That is to say, as so true, it's as if there's a Mount Sinai in front of you revealing this truth. It is so true to you in your understanding that it's as if we're standing at Mount Sinai right now hearing that revelation. I invite folks now, I'm gonna pause, so folks can write into the chat something that you believe um, to be um, so true um, that it's as if it's revealed today. Yosef Webb Cohen, thank you, that there are more things that I will never know versus all the things I will ever know. That's awesome. I love that humble approach of how much we don't know. Suzanne, thank you. We are all one. Wow, if this virus teaches us anything about the interconnectivity, about the oneness of God, or at least the oneness of all of human existence, Michael, thank you that the virus... Hi, friends, can you hear me? Okay. Um, okay, I'm not sure what that's like in our normal reality uh, where... Um, someone is just speaking and then everything goes down. I, I guess the closest thing is a microphone going off, right? <laughs> um, okay, I'm very sorry about that, but give, now that you're hearing me okay now? Okay, I just popped off there. I don't know what happened, it went down. Hopefully that won't happen again. Okay, anyways, they give folks a chance to, uh, to post a little bit more, so thank you. I'm not gonna continue reading on this one, but keep posting and keep reading to the extent that you wish. And um, again, I'm sorry for that, that little Zoom crash there. We're gonna jump to source four. Let's jump to source four, okay. Ah, uh, one of our most famous sources today. This is written by Rabbi Shlomo Luria, um, different than the Ari, of course. This, he's a 16th century Polish rabbi called the Maharshal, and his, his book here is called the Yam Shel Shlomo. And here's what he says here. All the, are the words of the living God, right? We've heard this before, this concept, as if they had all been received from on high and from the Mount of Moses, right? This is a basis for pluralism. Although it may have never come out from Moses's mouth in the form of two opposing views of the same subject. The Kabbalists gave a reason for this. 
It is because all souls were present at Mount Sinai, even those without the bodies there, and received the Torah through 49 separate channels, those being the sounds that they heard and also saw, right? They wrote at Etakolot. They saw the sounds. Think about that. They saw the sounds. All Israel saw the sounds. These were the interpretations that diverged through each channel, with everyone seeing through their own channel, according to their own power, so that one perceived complete impurity and another perceived complete purity, and yet a third perceived a middle position between the two. All are true. They are all words of the living God. And then it goes on here. This is all based, of course, on the Talmudic passage in Eruvin, this next source. Both these and these are the words of the living God. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These are all the words of the living God, even in an argument of opposing views. But here's the interesting part that we don't normally quote. And the halakha, the ruling, agrees with the school of Hillel. So we often forget to quote the second part because um, it's easy to forget that pluralism is not relativism. Relativism uh, means that really nothing is, is uh, fully true. And pluralism means that there's truth within everything to some degree. Um, and yet, even within the relativity of truth, the plurality of truth, even within the words that are spoken from God, there is paradox, there's opposing views that emerge in Revelation. Um, nonetheless, we must still act. And oftentimes, we must act together, even within such disagreements. Think about that during a pandemic. We might have different, different agreements on how to open, on how to close, on when to do such things. And yet, there needs to be some agreements even within different understandings. So now I'm going to invite folks to write again. And here's my question for you. Something that you disagree about, but you believe in a consensus um, or a compromise or in some unity, right? Something that you do in your life on a relational level, a societal level, and on a communal level, something you do, even though you kind of disagree with it, but because you think there is some space for compromise, consensus, for unity. Okay, I'm going to give you a few seconds to write over there, to think about this, this notion of, of living our truth, but also pulling back in a space of plurality, a space of pluralism, to make room for others, actively make room for others. Can you think of something like that? Okay. <laughs> yes, Rabbi Weiss Halivni, exactly. The people you talk to, you can't pray with. And the people you pray with, you can't talk to. Some people do have that experience. I have had that experience many a times in which um, the people I want to have a spiritual experience with are different than those I want to have an intellectual conversation with. Believe in pro-life, but vote pro-choice. Okay, Josh, very interesting that one might feel, I'm going to put words into Josh's mouth, that abortion is generally a bad thing, but believe politically that someone should have the choice to make that choice. Okay, interesting. Helen writes, I attend family meals where they serve meat even though I'm vegan. Hmm, that doesn't resonate at all for me. Um, <laughs> uh, Chaim, I work toward accepting others' Shabbat observance, even though it doesn't look like Shabbat observance to me. Okay, awesome stuff here. Awesome. Keep writing. Um, so this idea, um, and I'm sorry I'm not going to continue to read everyone's, but I'm loving this stuff coming out. I mean, I'm not going to read it out loud. I'm going to continue to read it while I talk, because that's what we're talking about. To some degree, reading while we're talking, engaging and evolving while we're still communicating, responding in kind of a, a very flowing type of conversation. So what happens historically from the transition from prophets to rabbis? right? There's the prophets, there's the priest, there's the rabbis. But looking at this, uh, at this, uh, yes, it's difficult to be patient with the inconsiderate and the unkind. Barbara, thank you. So it says over here, on the day that the temple was destroyed here, um, the prophecy was taken from the prophets and given over to the sages, okay? That means that we became a Jewish intellectual tradition, an interpretive tradition, rather than a prophetic tradition at that point. And it says here in the Talmud Bavli, this is now source two in the second section. Um, it says here, Rabbi Avdimi from Haifa said, 
From the day that the first temple was destroyed, the power of prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to the sages. Is it really true that no sage was previously a, a prophet? He meant, although prophecy was taken from the prophets who were not sages, when the temple was destroyed, it was not taken from the sages. Amemar said, a sage is even greater than a prophet. Chacham adif menavi. A sage is even greater than a prophet. That's radical, right? Um, as it says, and a prophet has a heart of wisdom, which is being compared to the other. We compare the lesser to the greater. That learning, interpreting within a, um, an intellectual engagement of uh, even of skepticism to some degree, faith or skepticism, that we are living within a human enterprise. This is not prophetic of absolutism or, or of clarity. And then these three mini quotes I brought here from different Talmudic uh, uh, sources. There are times when the um, annulment of something in the Torah strengthens its foundation. How radical is that? The sages have the power to uproot something from the Torah. Uproot it. And it is time to act for God by annulling the Torah. And this raises this profound question, which is intertwined with Revelation and with our moment of denominationalism and how we live today as modern or postmodern Jews. How do I juggle past commitments with current demands and with future aspirations? Where did we come from as Jews? Where are we today and where are we going? Right? What have I inherited um, and what am I going to pass forth? And what is the chain of continuity involved in that? Let me give a modern context that might resonate for some. Let's say someone's parent dies and they inherit money. Do they honor their philanthropic wishes 20 years later? Um, if they knew their parent was passionate about one cause, do they continue to honor that cause? Or do they follow their own wish? And what if the world changes as it always does? So what happens with inherited wisdom in our new moments and our new demands? Now, one of the most famous sources here, um, uh, relevant on this issue, is called Tanur Shalaknai, source three here. I'm sure many of you have seen it before. I've never looked at this source without uh, seeing something new. Um, so that's exciting for all of us. Um, and also, um, if this is your first time, then that's, that, then that's really delightful as well. So I'm going to move a little bit quickly through it, although we could spend literally the entire session on this source here from Bava Matsya in the Talmud. Source three. It has been taught. On that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument, but they did not accept them. Said he to them, if the halacha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was torn a hundred cubits out of its place. Others are formed 400 cubits. No proof can be brought from a carob tree. The sages retorted. Again, he says to them, if the ruling agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flowed backwards. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. Again, he urged, if the ruling agrees with me, let the walls of the schoolhouse prove it, whereas the walls tumble down. But Rabbi Yehoshua rebuked them, saying, when scholars are engaged in an intellectual uh, debate, a debate of the ruling, what have you to interfere in this? We don't want miracles in our intellectual discourse. Hence, they did not fall in honor of Rabbi Yehoshua. <coughs> Excuse me. Nor did they stand upright in honor of Rabbi Eliezer. And they are all, and they are still standing inclined. Again, he said to them, if the ruling, if the halakha agrees with me, let it be proved from the heaven. Whereas a basko, a batko, a heavenly voice cries out, why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the ruling agrees with him? But Rabbi Yehoshua arose and exclaimed, Torah lo bishamayim he. The Torah is not in heaven. The Torah is not in heaven. What did he mean by this? Said Rabbi Yirmiya that the Torah has already been given at Mount Sinai. We pay no attention to a heavenly voice, this batko. Because you have long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai, a case must be decided on the basis of the majority. 
our collective leadership. In fact, some early stages of democracy. I just did an interview online with Professor Michael Walter, one of the greatest living uh, political theorists. If you never wrote his, read his book, Exodus and Revolution, it's very much worth it. And he lays out three ways that the Bible sets the, the global stage for democracy. Rabbi Natan met Elijah the prophet, who we recently saw, at least he was at my table at Pesach. I don't know if your table uh, was so lucky he was, he was at my table. Um, at least somebody drank the, the grape juice, probably one of my kids when I left the room. <laughs> uh, they only get four cups. One of them got five. Instead, Rabbi Natan met Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, and asked him, what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do in that hour? He replied, God laughed with joy, saying, Oi, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Right, one of the most amazing Talmudic lines, right? That we have defeated God, so to speak. That we basically have silenced God's new revelations in order that we are a part of an intellectual interpretive process, which we have inherited and been gifted. That God wants us to take moral responsibility to learn and lead in this moment. We can't just rely upon being traditional and doing what the last generation did. We have to take responsibility for this moment. For this moment, we have to, I love that. Yeah, Eliyahu is socially distancing from you. Yes, Eliyahu came in with some social distance, wearing a mask. We couldn't tell who it was. He came and ate and drank and left. And in fact, it was the guy next door, right? <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask everyone to, to write something about Taner Shalak Nai. Anyone who wants to write something about this. We just saw this Talmudic passage, and it said, it said, Torah lo b'shemayimi, the Torah is not in heaven. So what, whatever happened at Sinai exactly is not really the main question. The main question is, what is my responsibility in this moment now to take what we've inherited from the 20th century Torah and move it to the 21st century? What needs to remain exactly as it was? What needs to radically shift? And what needs to very gradually be moved forward? As you're thinking about some thoughts and writing over there, I'll share a, a book that I read that was a very formative for me by Professor Tamar Ross. To Professor Tamar Ross from Ben Gurion, no, no, Barilan University. Um, and the book is called Expanding the Palace of Torah. And she writes in Expa Expanding the Palace of Torah that um, in each generation, new ideologies, new phenomena, new, um, new realities emerge. And in fact, um, to be engaged with Torah does not mean that we are loyal and faithful to the past and so we shut them out, but rather by bringing the good in, the new that's good, democracy, notions of justice, feminism, universalism, some might say nationalism, some might say communism or capitalism, these new things to various degrees, leaving the broken bits, but taking in the good bits and making it a part of what Torah is, expanding that, is the goal to bring the Torah into ourselves spiritually, is Michael's question. It's a great question. I'm not even going to attempt to answer it. I'm going to let the, the question linger. Um, uh, yes, and as, as, uh, as Chaim writes over there, the Torah does not say God says, I am who I am. If you saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, you can hear Charleston Heston's voice, I am that I am, right? I, I, I think is what he says over there. But actually, I am becoming who I will be. That to emulate the divine is to be in a state of constant becoming. Barbara, I'm responsible for doing the right thing and teaching my children to do the same. Beautiful. Okay, so much more of that. Yosef, I would argue that via the previous reading, we have the power to change all of Torah. However, what is the majority? That may be the real question. Interesting. Okay, I'm not going to read everyone's stuff over there, but that is an interesting thing. We saw here that we follow the majority. Now, the majority is a complicated thing because democracy is built upon majority rulings right? In many ways. That's how we think about a just society today, that we don't have the minority dominate the majority, but rather the majority to some degree. Uh, uh, I mean, Israeli's parliament coalition system is quite different. But here in a two-party system, which some might say is a broken system, uh, at least in theory, although it's, uh, sometimes the president doesn't win a majority or other elected officials don't win a, a majority, the idea is that the majority of voters um, are, in fact, um, are, are in fact honored. Um, and yet we know that part of what it means to be a Jew, to be an Ivri, is to be on the other side, to be
to push back against conformity, to push back against consor- c- consensus and the dominant, the dominant flow, to be a voice of resistance against the norms of today. Um, and yet there's also something virtuous here, the humility of saying, I hold a view um, of what Judaism is or should be, but it seems the majority of Jews today hold a different view. Um, and so we, I need to grapple with that. I can't just form my own religion. I'm a part of a community. Right? How do we do that? That's very complicated. If you've been on a synagogue board, I don't wish such a court curse upon you. <laughs> um, if you've ever been on a synagogue board, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it's very complicated because synagogues are complicated. Communities are complicated. And to try to negotiate the politics of, of what Judaism should look like in a micro community can be very heavy. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. Keep posting um, a lot of uh, amazing, amazing stuff going on here. Uh, loving these comments. I'm going to go back and read through them all later as well is my plan. Okay. Okay. Next, next chapter, ongoing revelation, ongoing revelation. Source one, the Shla HaKodesh, the Shla HaKodesh was a, a rabbi named Rabbi Yeshiyahu ben Avraham Horowitz. He was a 16th, 17th century mystic, late 16th, early 17th century. Uh, he's a Kabbalist. And he says, think about this. We all said it at our bar bat mitzvah. Um, or many of us did, uh, or we say it if we go to the Torah. In the blessing over the Torah, when we're called up, we stay, no tain ha Torah, right? We don't say, we say, God who gives the Torah, God who gives the Torah, right? In truth, he says, God already gave it, but God is still giving it with no cessation. Think about this. We say it in present, God gives the Torah. What does that mean, this notion of ongoing revelation? It says over here in the Shnei Luchot Abrit, that writing over there, same author, there is no generation without its Moses. Okay, now this is a complicated idea that not all greatness is lost to the past. There's three competing ideas here on intellectual history. One is called Yeridata Dorot, that we are declining in greatness. The greatness was back in the good old days, in the 1950s or whenever the good old days were. Um, the greatness was back at Mount Sinai, the sages, Moses. Today, who are we with these little pictures? What do we know? You know, it's like, we're, we're, so, we're all on social media and, and we're all, you know, uh, 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 overeating and doing all these, all these things that people po- point to as the great social ills of our time. We're nothing, we're nothing. The greats were back in the day. Now there's the opposite view, view in our tradition as well, that we're moving closer to Yemei HaMashiach the messianic days, and we are in a constant state of progress, getting closer, and each of us actually knows more than we ever knew about medicine, about science, about God, about society, about history, and so in fact, we're more enlightened than we ever were, is the opposite view, and then there's the middle view, which of course says every era has some fools, and every era has some geniuses, uh, and a whole lot in between, and not so much as new under the sun, right? Um, and so how do we hold maybe the paradox of you read that the Dorot, there's a decline, but there's also progress within that decline. Okay, there's, a gener- there's no generation without, without its Moshe Rabbeinu. Let's keep going. After he, Moshe, left this world, he faithfully, the faithful shepherd shone through the 600,000 souls of Israel. That is to say that inside of each of us, this revelatory capacity still is there and being actualized. As it says, one sixtieth of every dream is prophecy. Moses' influence extends through all generations to every righteous person. Moses' light sparkles in the sages of every generation to assist them in the direction of the truth. The spark of Moses' soul is now in you to direct you to the truth, it says, it says over there in that commentary. So now I'm going to invite you to write, and, uh, and I'm going to read some of these. Um, how do you experience the spark of the human soul? Let me, let's suggest for a moment, um, again, a lot of assumptions, but I think a lot of us might share them to various degrees, that humans are created, that we are all created in the image of God. We have a soul, or in Kabbalah, we have multiple layers of a soul. And there is an experience of knowing that soul of receiving light and emanation and enlightenment from that soul. So how do you or have you ever experienced the spark of the human spirit? That is to say that revelation is not happening on Mount Sinai today, as we read from our text, but that there is something that is happening that is ongoing internally and subjectively. 
feel free to write on this. This may be very personal. This may not be so personal, or it might be personal and you still want to share. Let's take a few thoughts here. As we're waiting there, it says here in Pirkei Avot, every single day a heavenly voice emerges from Mount Horeb. That, that, that revelation never stopped. Nancy writes, when I had the opportunity and honor to chant Torah, I prepare and then allow the spark to come up from the Torah and move through me to any who are there. Love this. Evan writes, I know this sounds crazy, but God has given me direction in some dreams I've had. You are not the only to have shared that. Shared that. Yosef, when I recognize the divine spark in others, ah, oh, that it's actually, it's, a, it's an inter-spark relationship. Your spark and my spark interact, and that's when our spark is, is awakened or illuminated. Wow. Uh, when dealing with adversity, Dory writes, a resonance, if you will, Yosef. Craig, many ways the spark comes through in nature, in music, in prayer, in the beauty of other faces, human love and care. I'll read just one more. Sakapudo, spark of the soul and moments in my backyard, hanging my sheets over my pool fence to dry. I, I was just explaining that phenomena to my kids, this notion of a, of, a, of, a, of a clothesline. Is that what you call it? That before dryers or, or even with dryers. Okay, so much more here. I can't read all this. This is amazing. The voice within. Okay, so this idea, let's continue to think about this idea of how we continue to know what we know. I'm going to skip over this Rabbi Dessler quote um, in, in the interest of time. Um, but basically, he's telling us that not everything needs to be new. Not ev the new is not what we always have to worship. Um, we can hear the old voice made anew. The old voice can be made anew. Um, there is continuity. Not everything changes. Um, actually, it's interesting. Our old view of memory was that there is like a database, and you stick your memory in there, then you pull it out when you want it. But um, constructivists or developmental psychologists for quite some time now have understood that memories are constantly being reconstructed, redeveloped, that with our new life experiences, our old memories are never pure, so to speak, but evolve with our new understandings. We can, in fact, never remember what we once knew. Our memories are constantly reconstructed. So, too, with the Torah, we've, we've learned or inherited that, in fact, um, we are grappling with a new uh, revelation intertwined with our life, with life and reality as we know it. Okay, David Hartman. Let's let's read something from David Hartman. Here's what he wants to say. We're still on this idea of uh, revelation today and the relationship between prophets and sages. Um, he writes over here. This is from his book, A Heart of Many Rooms, Celebrating the Many Voices Within Judaism. This is David Hartman's primary work on establishing Jewish pluralism both on an interfaith level and on an interdenominational level. Sinai permanently exposes the Jewish people to prophetic aspirations and judgments. Sinai requires of the Jew that he, we can add she, believe in the possibility of integrating the moral seriousness of the prophet, the moral seriousness of the prophet, with the realism and the political judgment of the statesman. Politics and morality were united when Israel was born as a nation at Sinai. The prophets taught us that the state has only instrumental value for the purpose of embodying the covenantal demands of Judaism. When nationalism becomes an absolute value for Jews and political and military judgments are not related to the larger spiritual and moral purpose of our national renaissance, we can no longer claim to continue the Judaic tradition. Wow, this is radical and such quintessential David Hartman, where the prophetic and the sage are combined, and he is grappling with this issue of how can Israel continue to be both Jewish and democratic, to be a secular enterprise and a religious enterprise, and he is very much in favor of a separation between religion and state, but not a separation of Jewish values from sovereignty. And so he is grappling with this idea of what happens when the prophet and the sage um, are, are disconnected, when the reality of the, 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 the real politic, if you will, of the statesman, of the sage, um, overcomes the prophetic voice of the tradition, the moral prophetic voice, what can happen um, to the Jewish enterprise? 
um, when it is primarily a political sovereignty that's not interconnected with a moral sovereignty. Again, not dealing with the notion of a chief rabbinate controlling uh, a state of Israel, that, that form of, of Jewish control, but a pluralism that allows for the plurality of Jewish values to interact with, with sovereignty. Wow, okay, a lot to unpack there. Feel free to do so in the chat um, and engage with folks over there. Um, uh, thank you, Mark. I believe the world needs Jews to be Jews. That's right. Um, that Jews um, have the gift of universalism, so interconnected, right? Elie Wiesel famously said, the role of the Jews was not to make, um, uh, the role of the Jews was not to make the world more Jewish, but to make the world more human, right? That in fact, our world, um, our role is a universalistic role of conscience, um, but also that we can only do that in a unique way if it comes from our, our Judaism. You'll look at, a, at an inter interview I did just an hour ago with Professor Daniel Boyarin, one of the greatest living academic Talmudists, um, who actually looks at this exact question um, that, uh, that, that, that we're grappling with there. Um, the role of particularism and, and universalism. Okay, so Rabbi Yochanan said, going on to source four here, four here, this is from Shemot Rabbah, roughly in, I think, an 11th or 12th century uh, rabbinic text. Rabbi Yochanan said, when God's voice came forth on Mount Sinai, it divided itself into 70 human languages so that the whole world might understand it. All at Mount Sinai, Young men and old, women, children, and infants heard the voice of God according to their ability to understand, according to their diversity. Moses, too, understood only according to his capacity. As it is said, Moses spoke and God answered him with a voice, with a voice that Moses could hear. We all hear differently. And here, um, I want to offer a feminist critique and if you're interested in this, if you, could, if you email me, I will, I will uh, send this to you. There is a uh, poem written by Mer Meryl Feld, uh, a teacher of mine from YCT, who wrote um, a poem called We All Stood Together. Here's what she writes. My brother and I were at Sinai. He kept a journal of what he saw, of what he heard, of what it all meant to him. I wish I had such a record of what happened to me. It seems like every time I want to write, I can't. I'm always holding a baby, one of my own or one of my friends, always holding a baby. So my friends are never free to write things down. And then as time passes, the particulars, the hard data, the who, what, when, where, why slip away from me. And all I'm left with is the feeling. But feelings are just sounds, the vowel barking of a mute. My brother is so sure of what he heard. After all, he's got a record of it consonant after consonant after consonant. If we remembered it together, we could recreate holy time, sparks flying. Her feminist critique that in fact, the oral tradition is a male tradition. Men spoke to men. Men wrote down the words of men. Women didn't have this opportunity to record, to be educated formally um, in such a way. What would have happened if the fullness of... Um, Oral versus oral, yes, yes, uh, yes. Please email us for the poem, um, or maybe uh, AJ, if you're listening still, you can Google it and you can post it in here. This I should have given it to you in the packet. We'll get it out to you. Um, that um, this notion of how are we impoverished by not hearing everyone's voice, men and women, straight folks and queer folks, folks who have means and those who are in poverty or somewhere in between, those who have learning disabilities, right? Jews of color, um, Jews of choice, right? There's a whole diversity, the full spectrum of the Jewish people, Ashkenazim and Sephardim, Israelis and diaspora, right? The, uh, our elders, our seniors and our children, we need to learn from all directions. That's what the revelatory experience, part of what it can remind us is that everyone heard a different Torah right at the beginning, and all the more so today that each of us holds a different Torah. Can we create space in our world, in our community for that? So let me, let me ask you a big question, right? I'm only interested in big questions today. What is the question you think God would ask you today? If you heard not a statement from God today, but a question, as I posed to some folks yesterday, um, what is the Shar HaShemayim question, the gates of heaven question? 
feel free to write that privately or if you want to write it in the chat, feel free to write that. Um, <coughs> yes, uh, uh, ah, the same thing, good. Uh, yes, the question asked to Rev Zushia, or why aren't you being the best you? Where can I find you? Ayeka, Ayeka, where are you? Right? We normally think of revelation as moral imperative. Here's what you must do. But revelation can also exist in questions. And in fact, those big questions are timeless. This whole question of Ayeka, we ask ourselves all the time, where am I? It's a daily question. Where am I? Right now, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, sitting in my wonderful office here, 4645. What is my address here? Uh, I, I don't know what my address is. 40, something like that. Uh, Maryland Road. <laughs> um, but, but actually, where am I? Where am I in the world? Where am I in my soul? Where am I in my thought? The Baal Shem Tov says, we are what we think. Wherever our mind is, is actually where we are, is what we are. These big questions themselves can be a revelatory experience. Okay, prophecy today. We're on our last two pages here, moving forward. Prophecy today. Talmud Bavli. Rabbi Yochanan said, from the day that the Holy Temple was destroyed, the power of prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to those suffering from mental illness and to children. Now, there's lots of ways to understand this. One might be um, that prophecy is gone. They're basically saying that certainty and prophecy is gone. Or we might say the opposite. There are you, those who have unique innocence, who those who strip the uh, certain types of intellectual clutter in certain moments to receive more clearly, such as children or those suffering from depression. That's not to romanticize depression or mental illness of other types, but rather to say that something in a different cognitive or affective state can create new space for a, for a revelatory capacity. Now, what about the Messianic era? We've been talking about history, and we've been talking about this moment, but actually the Kabbalists have something very radical to say about the Messianic era. Look here at source one in this new section. The commandments will be nullified in the age to come. All the Torah we know, out the window, nullified. It says over there in the, in the, in the Talmud um, of Nida. Rabbi ya Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, one of the great 18th century early Hasidic thinkers, one of the first disciples of the Baal Shem Tov, perhaps the most, uh, the most uh, renowned, writes, in the future, the commandments will reside in spirituality. And it is to this that the Talmud referred when it is said that they would be nullified in the future, that commandments will no longer have a physical form but rather only a spiritual one. Or Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the founder of Breslov Chassidut, who died at the age of only 38. I was thinking about that, that today. I'm, I have another month or two while I'm still 38. Um, and uh, what it means for him to have gone at such an age. He lived in the eight, late 18th century. He was the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Chassidut. He says, after this final exile will come the true revelation of the Torah. Oh, that's to say that the revelation hasn't even happened yet or completed yet. The, re the truest revelation is yet to come. It's yet to come. We, have, we are in a, spirit, a holding space between the second temple and the third temple, um, we learn from the rabbis. And there are new evolutions yet to come, that our fate, our direction, the destiny of Am Yisrael and of Torah Yisrael is not yet known. We don't exactly know where we're headed. In fact, um, there is, it is impossible to say that anything about coronavirus is good, that it's good. Um, and yet we can still say that there are huge learning moments that are present right now. Moments of learning and receiving right now and reflecting that are rare. For us to reimagine communal life, for us to reimagine our Jewish direction, our global direction for sure, but also, what is the Jewish um, community after this? This is a real intervention, whether someone thinks it's a purely um, uh, an intervention of nature or of a China lab, uh, a Chinese intervention or a divine intervention, whatever ideas are out there as to what's going on right now and who's, who kind of is making this stuff happen. Um, and I certainly haven't exhausted the ideas you'll find on the internet. Um, that this is an opportunity for us to think about that direction. Okay, our last two sources, and then we'll move it towards our, uh, our, our wrap-up. 
Um, not only do we learn from text and revelation, uh, so to speak, but also from natural morality. It says in the Talmud, wouldn't reason and natural morality be enough? If we had not received the Torah, we would have learned modesty from watching a cat, honesty from the ant, and fidelity from the dove. Of course, there's some rabbinic humor there, but also what they're saying is, what did we need revelation for at all? If you just observe the world, if you're an empiricist, if you are someone who is attuned to reality, actually most wisdom is embedded there, that everything is intertwined with revelation. And so I want to ask that big question and feel free to write on the side if you wish. Where does revelation emerge from today? If there is ongoing revelation, does it emerge from the text? Does it emerge in chavruta, in, in dialogical engagement? Does it emerge within from the sparks of the soul? Does it emerge from beyond that, that small, that little small voice? Is it interspatial from the connection between imminence and transcendence? Where does this revelation emerge from today? And how do we tap into such a thing, right? Not in that loud voice, thunderous voice of Sinai, but in the quiet voice that each of us must live each day making choices, right? We're never on cruise control. We make choices every day of how to live. And in those choices, what's guiding us? What is guiding those choices? on the deepest level. Now, our last source today is from who we call Rabbi Shigar, Rav Shigar, and his real name was Rabbi Shimon Gershon Rosenberg. He was one of the, one of the uh, foremost uh, thinkers of neo-Hasidism. That means taking Hasidic thought into modernity, but in his case, into post-modernity, because he was a post-modernist. And what is post-modernity all about? Well, th the beginning stages of it, at least, is that there's a failure of enlightenment. The Holocaust showed us that reason was not enough. Germany was the most or one of the most enlightened societies, so to speak, founded on reason, on academic thought and philosophy. And yet they could commit the one of the greatest, if not the greatest atrocity of human history, of what human beings could do to other human beings you know, in the course of only a six-year period. Um, and so postmodernism post says, whoa, reason is not enough. It's not enough to say my wisdom comes purely from reason. The Shoah taught us that, that there is something called the transrational. Some people talk about love as being part of the transrational. If we live by love, we do more than what just reason tells us to do. Anyone who has been a parent of a child knows that we have to operate beyond reason at times <laughs> based upon our love. Um, and certainly many other cases as well. So what is the flow or the source of, of what we know to be most true? For example, what is the root of our conscience? Wiesel talked a lot about conscience. As Jews, we talk a lot, a lot about being a voice of moral conscience today. Well, where is that conscience coming from? Is it coming from our tradition? Is it coming from our soul? Is it coming from the deepest places of reason? Right? Where did we inherit this innate voice of conscience that tells us genocide is wrong, that abuse and oppression and injustice is something we must fight? Where did our moral intuition come from? Those who say, trust your gut. Right? All of reason tells you to do something, but something in your gut says, don't do it. Don't do it. We all understand that feeling. Where does that come from? That, that gut feeling, that into moral intuition, that deep place of knowing that deep place of knowing. So here's the source. And then I'll invite folks to share some final uh, thoughts or questions on the side before we wrap up. What Rav Shigar writes over here. He says, to me, the creative act reveals the divine through the human. All truths may be the product of human conditioning, but such conditioning constitutes the medium through which the divine manifests in the world. That is why the pluralist believer does not shy away from using the revelation metaphor. You might think revelation means absolutist. Oh, there's one word of God, and I believe in it or I don't believe in it. But he says the pluralist can love the revelation metaphor. He continues, though he knows there are varying and conflicting revelations, the contradictions do not paralyze him. He is willing to concede that truth is a human construct because he knows that human constructs 
are true creations, manifestations of God in a world that is filled with God's glory, not an empty, meaningless game. So friends, this is something to think about. Um, there is the historical question of what we think happened and how we relate to that. There's the question of this ongoing experience within the self, within Chavruta, within community, within the world, of how we are receiving new revelation. There's the question of the future and how that future is brought into the present, this moment of hope where we bring that future anticipation, that yearning into the present and how we live today um, based upon how we hear that still small voice. And then this question of how do we get more clarity each day and continue collectively to get clarity on our future direction. Individuals standing before our creator, collectively as families, as communities, as a Jewish people, as humanity, as all of creation. And how do we foster a more just society, a more, um, a more good world that is sustainable, that is compassionate? And what are the tools that we're using to get there? And then beyond the tools, how do we have a shared language if we have conflicting views of revelation as Jews, as Christians, as Muslims, as, as Eastern religions, as atheists, right? Um, that each of us is receiving what we are receiving from our own ideologies, um, or even as Jews within the same denomination, in the same family, we still have conflicting revelations. How do we have a shared language to talk about our values within that? I'm, I'm going to look at a few thoughts and questions on the side here before we wrap up. Humility is not a popular precept today. Yes, the humility of knowing and also not knowing and keeping space for others knowing. And just because we can't get a definitive answer doesn't mean we shouldn't ask the question. Right? The big questions that we might not get answers to, but we might get closer to better answers, or we might at least come out with better questions. All channels can be relevant as long as, all, as people are one. In ages of reason, we sometimes, I think, forget the purpose of our learning and that we are just another species. We forget to have humility and continue to see one another. One more here from Avraham. Torah takes the shape of the vessel that contains it. Wow, that's a powerful imagery also, right? That actually um, we are molders of Torah. Torah molds us and we mold Torah in this dynamic flow. Um, that is spatial and temporal and existential. And so uh, I want to return to the nigun we started with and then close with a bracha. Feel free to continue to write on the side. Yes, in fact, as Evan writes here, the breaking of the vessels, shvirata kelim is, is um, a quintessential and foundational constitutive part of Kabbalah, but also of postmodernity because it means that all of reason as we know it is broken, all of the clarity is broken. And what is the response to Shvirat HaKelim, the broken vessels? Tikkun Olam, our job to repair the world, to return sparks to the bonfire through a mitzvah we do every day. That each day we can do a mitzvah, either on a ritual dimension of spiritual consciousness or on an ethical dimension to bring light to someone else, to bring light to the world. So let's do this nigun. Feel free to, to join me in the nigun or continue to write on the side here. And then we'll end with a little, a little bracha. Oh, 204. Can you believe that? Friends, I give you the bracha. And I hope you'll give me the bracha back. As we approach Shavuot, the time of Matan Torah, we approach, uh, yes, thank you, Saul, Leonard Cohen, that uh, every, with every crack allows some light to come in. That as we approach Matan Torah, that whatever our commitment to Torah is, right, if it's through deep observance or a more liberal approach to Judaism, if it's through a God-centered prism or a more um, uh, um, uh, um, agnostic uh, prism, 
uh, communal or individual, existential or collectivist, that whatever our approach is, that we continue to double down in our search, our study of the text, if we find revelation in text, our meditation and tefillah, our prayer, if we experience as God voices there, our, our dialogue and ethical engagement, if that's where we find divinity, that we continue to realize that it is our responsibility as Jews to keep Judaism alive. And keeping Judaism alive does not mean freezing it. We can't freeze it. As the, as the old joke says, how many rabbis does it take to, to change a light bulb? Change. Change, right? We can't change. Uh, you know, I, that actually um, uh, change does happen constantly, constantly, as scientists will tell us that, that actually everything is in flux. The mutation of the virus, everything is in flux constantly. Our, our ability to adapt and yet keep alive the deepest truths, the deepest parts of our tradition, and yet continue to find the new light that is revealed uniquely to the Moses spark within us, to the unique revelatory spark within us, that we continue to keep our own unique light alive and keep our collective light alive. I bless you with that as we approach Matan Torah, as we count the Omer moving towards Shavuot, and that uh, you bless me back uh, with such an experience that we find the joy of, 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 of Torah, of revelation, of reason, that's all interconnected with natural morality and with conscience and with halakha and agadah, um, and that we find that in good health and in strength and in hope as we live in dark times, that we continue to not only receive light that others are sending to us, but pass that light on to others, others who need our light. That, that as Rebbe Nachman said, the day you were born is the day that God decided, decided the world could not exist without you, without you. That each of us has a unique light, a unique revelation to share as well in, as people created in God's image. May we all do that together in hope and life, good health and in strength.